you can take your copy of God's Word and turn to Mark chapter 11. Thank you, Randy, for sharing. I think about if you're um, reading in our Bible reading plan with us in, in Exodus, when they're talking about building the temple, how those men building the temple were gifted by the Spirit to do that. And I think we have, uh, now of course, um, anybody can go on these trips and help. Um, they're very clear about that. But I think we have some men in our church that are especially gifted by the Spirit. To If, if I was there for a week, there's no way I'd, I'd do all that in those houses that Randy was talking about. I don't have that spiritual gift, but I'm thankful for the men that do. We're in Mark 11. Excited to be back in Mark. Hope you are as well. Uh, we are studying verses 1 through 11 this morning. This is God's word for us, starting in verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mountain of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing and tying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna and the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. It's God's word for us this morning. Let's go to God now and ask for him to bless us as we pursue his word. Father, we believe that this is your word inspired by the Holy Spirit. God, we believe that this passage we just read is um, our standard and solution. And we come before you this morning eager to hear your word. God asking that you build up this church through this word. That you can encourage us, edify us, challenge us, convict us, draw sinners to yourself. God, we believe that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So do surgery on our hearts this morning and be glorified. In this church, in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Did you know that there is a football game tonight? You might not have known, so I wanted to let you know that there's a game tonight. It's called the Super Bowl. Okay, um, It's called the National Football League. It's in Las Vegas. And apparently, 1.5 billion pounds of chicken wings will be eaten tonight. And that's just at my house. I don't know, worldwide. Stats say that about 19 million people skip work tomorrow. Maybe you're planning on doing that, I don't know. $1.1 billion is going to pour into the Las Vegas economy over this week. $1.1 billion of revenue. And tonight, about 200 million people will be watching, uh, which is over, you know, 60% of our population. All of that just to watch some people play a game. 
Uh, tonight we will see a whole lot of pomp and circumstances for something that's really not that glorious, if you think about it. Uh, no matter what you hear, what you're going to hear tonight if you watch, I'm sure at the end, no matter what you hear, uh, a Super Bowl championship will not last forever. Okay, the banner does not last forever. The ring does not last forever. And now in our passage today, we're actually going to see um, something like the reverse of the Super Bowl. Because we're going to see someone truly glorious, Jesus Christ, fall short of the glory he truly deserves. Now, it's been a while since we've been in Mark, so let's catch up. Way back in chapter 8, verse 29, Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ. And this was the big turning point in the entire gospel. After Peter's confession, Jesus becomes much more straightforward about his purpose and intention and plan on being the Messiah, where through chapters 8 and 10, three times, Jesus predicts his future death and resurrection, which is going to happen in Jerusalem with the scribes, religious leaders, and those people. And so in today's passage, we see Jesus finally in the Gospel of Mark enter into Jerusalem. So in our passage today, we begin to study the last week of Jesus' earthly life, which is so often called Passion Week. Uh, and in this, for this week, for this last week of Jesus' life, Mark slows way down. You know, in the Gospel of Mark, it's immediately, 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 just so fast, fast-paced. Now, um, starting in chapter 11, all the way through chapter 16 is just one week. So about a third of the entire book deals with seven days. This week begins with what is often called the triumphal entry, because at least on the surface, It's an extremely joyful and happy scene. No witness to this huge celebration would ever guess this is the week that Jesus would be brutally murdered, except for Jesus himself. So we're going to walk through this passage, then we're going to ask what doctrine it reveals to us, and then we're going to ask how it can be applied to our lives. So in verse 1, Jesus finally draws near to Jerusalem. Not just Jesus. Notice it says they drew near to Jesus. This would be the disciples. But not just the disciples, but a large and growing crowd. If you remember in chapter 10, verse 46, uh, he's traveling, leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd. There's this big group of people. They're pilgrims on the way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and they arrive right outside Jerusalem at the Mount of Olives. Now in verse 2 and 3, once they get to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sends two unnamed disciples into the village ahead of them and gives them some strange instructions. What he says, he says, go, this is verse 2, into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set, untied and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. So Jesus wants a colt. You can think of a donkey. And he wants the disciples just to walk into town, grab a donkey, and if questioned, say, the Lord has need of it, and then walk back out. Why would Jesus' plan ever actually work? Right? Go in there, grab a donkey, come back, bring it to him. If anybody says anything, just say, the Lord has need of it. 
One reason may be because in ancient cultures, the king could commandeer an animal to ride whenever he needed it. So to come in and say, the Lord has need of it, they, they might, curios is, is the word there, they might say, okay, the Lord has, the king has need of it. Okay, take it. Um, another reason could be that the owner was a believer. So if they come and said, hey, the Lord Jesus needs it, and they say, oh, if Jesus needs it, go ahead. Um, or it could have been just the authority of Christ working this situation out according to his will. Now, specifically, Jesus, if you notice, wants a donkey on which no one has ever sat. So Jesus is very peculiar about the cult that he um, is going to use. Why is that? In the Old Testament, there was um, a special significance for unused animals. Numbers 19.2 says, This is the statute of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer without defect, in which there is no blemish, and on which a yoke has never come. So there's the sense of an unridden, unused animal being set apart for special purposes. And another cultural element would be that the king's um, animal could not be ridden on by anybody else except the king. So Jesus, the Lord, Curios, the, the king, required a cult on which no one has ever been set. Now, with all that said, could you imagine getting this command to go into this town and commit Grand Theft Donkey? It's definitely an awkward command. It gets you out of your comfort zone, right? We're talking about getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. Right here it is. Go and sort of steal a donkey. Even though Christ exactly lays out the plan, tells them how it's going to go, it would still take a lot of faith and submission to Christ's authority to go and carry out this plan, would it not, that these disciples do. But nevertheless, in verses 4 through 7, the disciples, these two unnamed disciples, obey Jesus. And I want you to notice that everything plays out exactly the way Jesus said it would. They find the donkey outside in the street. They get questioned. They tell them what Jesus said, and they let them go. Jesus got his donkey. Notice when Jesus gets his colt in verse 7, they, uh, it, he doesn't have a saddle, doesn't have anything, so they, they take their own cloaks to the disciples and put it on there, and there's a certain humility to it, right? Where, okay, he's on this donkey. If he doesn't even have a saddle, he's, they're putting these shirts on it. Now, contrasted with that humility is verses 8 through 10, where... Uh, for the first time in the Gospel of Mark, it seems as if Jesus is intentionally drawing attention to himself, right? Throughout the Gospel, if you've been here for a while, you know um, Jesus was always denying public proclamations of his um, being the Christ. If he healed, he would say, hey, don't tell anybody about this. If somebody said, you're the Christ, he'd be like, be quiet about that. Uh, transfiguration happens, he's like, don't tell anybody about this. Right, he was constantly there's this there's this messianic secret all throughout Mark, and then all of a sudden Christ is going public with who he is. Why do I say that this is obvious of what he's saying? People would see Jesus doing this and quickly think of Zechariah nine nine, which states, "Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem!" Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus is, in this moment, fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy and doing so intentionally. And the prophecy states that the king would come riding this colt. 
the king would come into Jerusalem in this way. So Jesus is fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy, and he's doing so very intentionally. He's entering Jerusalem in in about the boldest way you ever possibly could, rightfully claiming that he is coming to Jerusalem not as a mere visitor, but as Jerusalem's true king. Then in an act of adoration, you see the crowd in verse 8 begin to spread their cloaks out on the road. They, they get leafy branches they cut from the fields, and they, they spread them out before Jesus. So Jesus isn't touching the ground. Jesus' donkey isn't even touching the ground. This is just this, this, this crazy scene that's happening, which is very similar to what we see in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, when Jehu is becoming king after Ahab. And in 2 Kings 9.13, it says, Then in haste, this is at his coronation, Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Take all this together, okay? You take the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, you take the similarity to 2 Kings 9.13, you take the, um, you know, the commandeering of a donkey, all this is looking like a coronation. Like there is a political move happening where someone is entering into the capital city of Jerusalem to become the king. But this crowd is not just showing adoration with their actions, but we also see the crowd proclaim in verse 9, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. So the crowd is shouting this phrase, Hosanna, which means help or save me, or save I pray. So they're proclaiming Hosanna. And then that's, that's kind of like the bookends, okay, on the front and the end. They say, Hosanna, Hosanna, save me, save me. And in the middle are these two phrases, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming of our father David. I want to take these one at a time. So the first one is, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This should sound really familiar to you because we've read this this morning in Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is Psalm 118, 26. I want to read it again in context, starting in verse 19. It says, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, right there, very similar to Hosanna. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So Psalm 118 was originally a psalm sung by pilgrims as they entered into the temple sanctuary. And this is extremely fitting that this is in verse 10 because look what happens in verse 11 when Jesus enters into the temple. Okay, but I want you to notice the verses immediately before verse 26 in Psalm 118. So they quote verse 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Right before that is this phrase um, in Psalm 118, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is so interesting because in the next chapter of Mark, Mark chapter 12, 
Jesus quotes those two verses in reference to himself. Mark 12, verses 10 through 11. So what we see here in this triumphal entry is the crowd just so happens to use Psalm 118 to praise Jesus. And then directly after that, in the next chapter, Jesus uses Psalm 118 and says, hey, actually, that psalm is about me. Let me summarize it like this. Jesus is knowingly fulfilling prophecy, while the crowd is unknowingly fulfilling prophecy. It isn't that interesting. Okay, the next phrase. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Now, this is not a quote in the Old Testament. Uh, The idea of the coming kingdom of our father, David, is certainly in the Old Testament, even though you won't find that precise wording anywhere. The more accurate, accurate way to say this, of course, would be to say the coming kingdom of the son of David. Right? Because David ain't ruling in this coming kingdom. His son will be. So the crowd doesn't have a lot of theological precision here, but they do have a ton of religious zeal, or maybe perhaps we could say political zeal. And Jesus enters into Jerusalem with an absolute fever pitch of religious fervor. Do you see that? He's riding on the donkey, fulfilling prophecy. People are laying their cloaks down. They're, They're saying, you know, here comes the king. Hosanna, save us. Here comes the kingdom of our father, David. I mean, this is incredible pomp and circumstances. Another way to say it is that Jesus and his posse have absolutely made a scene. And the message would be clear. The son of David, the Christ, the king of the Jews, has arrived in Jerusalem. Which makes this next verse, verse 11, even more odd. See, he entered Jerusalem, went into the temple. Okay, what's about to happen? The king's here. There's this huge coronation going on. He finally enters into the temple. It it almost feels like the entire narrative has led up to this moment. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Bethany is where he started the story in verse 1. Once Jesus enters Jerusalem, arrives at the temple, it's like the crowd completely disappears. No more energy, no more fervor, no more pomp and circumstances. It's just Jesus looking around at the temple late at night and then goes back. The whole event really just falls flat. It's not a true coronation. In fact, it's just the calm before the storm. Okay, now I want to zoom out and point out that in this passage we clearly see the deity of Jesus Christ. Do you see in this story how everything that Christ said would happen, happened? Jesus Christ is sovereign. Jesus said there would be a donkey that the disciples would be able to find, take away with no problems. The donkey was exactly where he said and the events unfolded exactly as he said. There was no surprises because Christ was in control. No, I, I don't think this was a case of Jesus Christ planning ahead. I don't think this was Jesus being good at networking or knowing of a friend who owned a donkey. I don't believe any of that. I believe this is an example of Jesus Christ's precise foreknowledge and sovereignty over the future. I would suggest to you that Jesus didn't just know of this donkey. 
I believe that Jesus Christ in his omniscience could have located every single donkey on the planet if he so wished. And this whole situation worked out exactly the way Christ said it would, not because he got lucky, not because he was a good leader, not because he knew human nature so well, no. The whole situation worked out the way Christ wanted it to work out because Christ is so full of wisdom and power and authority. This whole thing was orchestrated by Jesus Christ, from the donkey to the leafy branches to the words said by the crowd, with absolute precision so that he could perfectly fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. And this should not be surprising to us this morning because this is the same Christ who can speak and calm a storm. This is the same Christ who can heal the blind, the sick, the lame, the deaf. This is the same Christ who can perform exorcisms over the demonic. This is the same Christ who can walk on water. And yet again in the Gospel of Mark, we are confronted with the incredible authority of Jesus Christ, even over the future, the the wills of men, and the location of donkeys. And the reason why this man can do these things, can can orchestrate things like we see in Mark chapter 11, is because we are not dealing with and studying a man, but we are studying and um, being confronted with the God-man who is truly God in human flesh, who as Ephesians 1.11 says, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. And with that in mind, How absolutely incredible is the fact that this man, the one who can work all things according to the counsel of his will, the one completely in control with this amazing authority, is going to be killed on a cross by the hands of sinful and weak men. And this story should show us at the front of Passion Week, at the beginning of this last week of Jesus' earthly life, this should show us beyond a shadow of a doubt that the events that we will soon read about through the rest of the Gospel of Mark, such as his betrayal, his trial, his humiliation, his isolation, his crucifixion, all those events are not events imposed upon Christ against his will. No, Christ is in complete control even when he is on the cross. Christ is sovereign over even his own murder. All this is going to happen. Everything we read about in Mark chapter 11 all the way through the end of Mark 16, it's going to happen because Christ wants it to happen. So the question is, maybe you're here this morning and you don't have much um, exposure to the Bible. The question is, why would a man being so celebrated and praised in this story, why would a man with such authority, power, and control, why would that man willingly be brutally murdered and die as a humiliated criminal? There's only one answer to that question. We see it in Mark 10.45, to give his life as a ransom for many. My friend, this morning... Apart from Christ, you are dead in sin. You are enslaved to Satan. You are entranced by the world, conquered by sin, doomed to die, destined for hell and hell eternal. But Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Just like yourself. He came and he 
did not have his life taken from him, but he willingly, as we see in this story, no one could take his life. He's in full control. No, he gave his life as a ransom for many. He died so that you could live. So come to Christ this morning, forsaking your life of sin and in faith shouting, Hosanna, save me, help, Lord. And he can do it this morning. He has authority to save. He is able to give you a new heart. He is able to forgive you of your sins. He is able to provide you entrance into eternal life with God. Repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ, calling out Hosanna to him. You can do that right now. I implore you to do so. Give your life to Christ. For the believers in this room, how does a story like this apply to us? have three points of how we can apply this. Number one is to trust Christ. Meditating on the truth of the sovereignty of God seen in Christ in this story should greatly impact your life. Throughout this entire passage, as we've, as we've seen, Christ has been completely in control. And my friends, Jesus Christ is still completely in control. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Christ we read about in Mark chapter 11 is still the same today. Just like we talked about last week, Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. So, therefore, you can trust Him. You can trust Him with your life. Do you have a past full of regret? Trust Him. Do you, are, is, your, is your present full of difficulties and struggles and, and suffering? You can trust him right now. Is your future full of uncertainties and, and fears and anxieties? Trust Christ. Do you not see that he, if he can orchestrate this, and the Bible says he can orchestrate all things, do you not see how he's worthy of your trust this morning? One of my favorite verses is Joshua 21, 45, which says, Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Since Jesus is God, this is talking about Jesus. And, and we see that in this story. Whatever Christ wants to happen, happens. Whatever Christ promises to come to pass is going to come to pass. So we should, if you're a believer, marvel at the indescribable authority of Jesus Christ until you train your heart to trust him. He is fully and completely worthy of your trust. I mean, just consider the intricate details fulfilled in this story when it comes to Old Testament prophecy. Whether it comes to Zechariah 9.9, you could even look at Genesis 49, Ezekiel 12, I believe, um, Psalm 118. Jesus has orchestrated this whole event to perfectly fulfill all these prophecies down to the smallest details. Therefore, can't we trust him with our lives? Scripture shows the trustworthiness of Christ, and so does this story. Number two is obey Christ. These, these two disciples in the passage, minor, minor parts of the story, um, Jesus is the hero, but these two disciples are great examples for us to follow. Are they not? Jesus gives them an awkward and difficult command, and they obey it. I want to suggest to you this is what discipleship to Jesus should look like. Hearing the word of Christ and obeying the word of Christ. Hearing the command of Christ and obeying the command of Christ. So today I want to ask, does your life look like these two disciples? Is obedience to Christ a defining mark of your life? Another way to ask it is, is your life 
currently being run by your opinions or by Christ's authority. I pray today that the Holy Spirit can reveal to your heart and mind how wickedly foolish it is to reject God's will for your life. Do you see the wisdom involved in this story, the planning, the orchestration, the sovereignty, the control, the authority? Okay, now imagine trying to run your life apart from that person. It makes no sense. You're going to trust yourself over Christ. He's worthy of your trust. Thus, he's worthy of your obedience. So maybe you need to repent today of a certain area of willful disobedience in your mind, in your heart, in your life. Where you know the command of Christ, but you're currently ignoring it. You're currently rejecting his authority over your life. Number three is to worship Christ. In this passage, Mark 11, 1 through 11, we see Christ clearly exalted, celebrated, praised by men. For the first time in the Gospel of Mark, he's finally getting some of the attention and adoration he deserves. You might be reading it saying, about time, he gets some of this. But, I want to suggest to you, this crowd doesn't go nearly far enough in their worship of Christ. Falls short of what he deserves. And this sort of makes sense, because think about it. Why, why at this moment was the crowd praising Christ? Why were they doing all this? Probably because they've seen him work some miracles, and probably because they have a hope that Jesus is going to restore the glory of the nation of Israel. Therefore, all this celebration is over small little things like physical health and politics. I mean, that's what you're getting worked up over? They have no idea what Christ is truly coming into Jerusalem to actually accomplish. They have no idea of the full picture of the gospel. They didn't know that Jesus Christ was going to be the first man in human history to perfectly obey the law of God his entire life. They didn't know that Jesus Christ was going to bear the wrath of God on the cross in the place of sinners. They didn't know that Jesus Christ was going to defeat death forever by resurrecting from the dead and walking out of his own tomb. They didn't know that Jesus was going to make a way for sinful man to be reconciled to a holy God. They did not know. They had no idea that Jesus Christ was entering into Jerusalem not to establish a physical kingdom, but to accomplish the greatest thing to ever happen in the history of the universe. They didn't know. And therefore, this scene in Mark 11 is not the true coronation of King Jesus. What we see here is just a crowd of people riled up about politics. This is empty, worldly glory that falls short of what our Jesus Christ so truly deserves. Oh, but after Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And Hebrews 1, 3 and 4 says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Could you imagine this scene? 
Jesus Christ in human flesh victoriously returning back home to the glory of heaven with the redemption of mankind perfectly accomplished to sit down at the right hand of the Father in complete exaltation. Could you imagine in this moment the glory, the praise, the adoration and worship? But even again, let me suggest that heavenly worship still falls short of what our Lord Jesus Christ deserves. What? How? Why? Because that worship doesn't include every single person who's ever existed. Even in that scene, there are some people not recognizing and worshiping Jesus as he deserves. But the scripture tells us that there is a day coming when that will happen. Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that, my friends, will be the true coronation day when Jesus finally and fully gets recognized for who he truly is. The king, not over Israel. The king, not over just the church. The king, not over just the world, but the king over the entire universe. And he will fully and finally get the worship that he deserves. And my friends, my brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is great and greatly to be praised. He is worthy to be worshipped and glorified and enjoyed. So, let's do that. Let us in our hearts worship him in spirit and in truth. This week, let's lay down our lives as living sacrifices, as is our spiritual worship. For nothing less makes sense in light of the glorious person work of Jesus Christ. It's him we worship. Amen. God, Jesus Christ, we see this picture of you being praised and realize it's not nearly enough. But God, we see the full glory of the gospel in your scriptures. And God, I pray that this can be a church that glorifies and enjoys you, that worships in spirit and in truth, presenting our bodies as living sacrifices. Holy Spirit, apply your word to your people's hearts. Help us learn to trust you even when it's hard, obey you, even when it's difficult, and worship you like you deserve. We love you, Jesus. God, I I pray, Holy Spirit, that you can, that you can bring a sense of awe and adoration, that we can truly see you and savor you, Jesus Christ, that we can bow our knee and confess you as Lord even now. Apply your word to our hearts in ways that I never could. In your name, Jesus, amen.